Volume Three, Part Ten of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Three, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley, Part Ten. Xerxes was pleased by what Epialtes promised to accomplish. He immediately became overjoyed, and sent out Hidarnes and the men under Hidarnes' command, who set forth from the camp at about lamplighting time. This path had been discovered by the native Malians, who used it to guide the Thessalians into Phocis when the Phocians had fenced off the pass with a wall, and were sheltered from the war. So long ago the Malians had discovered that the pass was in no way a good thing. The course of the path is as follows. It begins at the river Asopus as it flows through the ravine, and this mountain and the path have the same name, Anopea. This Anopea stretches along the ridge of the mountain and ends at Alpenis, the Locrian city nearest to Malis, near the rock called Black Buttock, and the seats of the Cercopes, where it is narrowest. This, then, was the nature of the pass. The Persians crossed the Asopus and travelled all night along this path, with the Otian mountains on their right, and the Trachinian on their left. At dawn they came to the summit of the pass. In this part of the mountain one thousand armed men of the Phocians were on watch, as I have already shown, defending their own country and guarding the path. The lower pass was held by those I have mentioned, but the Phocians had voluntarily promised Leonidas to guard the path over the mountain. The Phocians learned in the following way that the Persians had climbed up. They had ascended without the Phocians' notice, because the mountain was entirely covered with oak trees. Although there was no wind, a great noise arose like leaves being trodden underfoot. The Phocians jumped up and began to put on their weapons, and in a moment the barbarians were there. When they saw the men arming themselves they were amazed, for they had supposed that no opposition would appear, but they had now met with an army. Hidarnes feared that the Phocians might be Lacedaemonians, and asked Epialtes what country the army was from. When he had established what he wanted to know with certainty, he arrayed the Persians for battle. The Phocians, assailed by thick showers of arrows, and supposing that the Persians had set out against them from the start, fled to the top of the mountain and prepared to meet their destruction. This is what they intended, but the Persians with Epialtes and Hidarnes paid no attention to the Phocians, and went down the mountain as fast as possible. The seer Megistius, examining the sacrifices, first told the Hellenes at Thermopylae that death was coming to them with the dawn. Then deserters came who announced the circuit made by the Persians. These gave their signals while it was still night. A third report came from the watchers running down from the heights at dawn. The Hellenes then took counsel, but their opinions were divided. Some advised not to leave their post, but others spoke against them. They eventually parted, some departing and dispersing each to their own cities, others preparing to remain there with Leonidas. It is said that Leonidas himself sent them away because he was concerned that they would be killed, but felt it not fit for himself and the Spartans to desert that post which they had come to defend at the beginning. I, however, tend to believe that when Leonidas perceived that the allies were dispirited and unwilling to run all risks with him, he told them to depart. For himself, however, it was not good to leave. If he remained, he would leave a name of great fame, and the prosperity of Sparta would not be blotted out. When the Spartans asked the oracle about this war when it broke out, 
the Pythia had foretold that either Lacedaemon would be destroyed by the barbarians, or their king would be killed. She gave them this answer in hexameter verses running as follows. For you, inhabitants of wide-wayed Sparta, either your great and glorious city must be wasted by Persian men, or if not that, then the bound of Lacedaemon must mourn a dead king from Heracles' line. The might of bulls or lions will not restrain him with opposing teeth, for he has the might of Zeus. I declare that he will not be restrained until he utterly tears apart one of these. Considering this, and wishing to win distinction for the Spartans alone, he sent away the allies rather than have them leave in disorder because of a difference of opinion. Not the least proof I have of this is the fact that Leonidas publicly dismissed the seer who attended the expedition, for fear that he might die with them. This was Megistius the Archananian, said to be descended from Olympus, the one who told from the sacrifices what was going to happen to them. He was dismissed, but did not leave. Instead, he sent away his only son, who was also with the army. Those allies who were dismissed went off in obedience to Leonidas, only the Thespians and Thebans remaining with the Lacedaemonians. The Thebans remained against their will and desire, for Leonidas kept them as hostages. The Thespians very gladly remained, saying they would not abandon Leonidas and those with him by leaving. Instead, they would stay and die with them. Their general was Demophilus, son of Diandromes. Xerxes made libations at sunrise, and waiting till about mid-morning, made his assault. Epialtes had advised this, for the descent from the mountain is more direct, and the way is much shorter than the circuit and ascent. Xerxes and his barbarians attacked, but Leonidas and his Hellenes, knowing they were going to their deaths, advanced now much farther than before into the wider part of the pass. In all the previous days they had sallied out into the narrow way and fought there, guarding the defensive wall. Now, however, they joined battle outside the narrows, and many of the barbarians fell, for the leaders of the companies beat every one with whips from behind, urging them ever forward. Many of them were pushed into the sea and drowned, far more were trampled alive by each other, with no regard for who perished. Since the Hellenes knew that they must die at the hands of those who had come around the mountain, they displayed the greatest strength they had against the barbarians, fighting recklessly and desperately. By this time most of them had had their spears broken and were killing the Persians with swords. Leonidas, proving himself extremely valiant, fell in that struggle, and with him other famous Spartans, whose names I have learned by inquiry since they were worthy men. Indeed, I have learned by inquiry the names of all three hundred. Many famous Persians also fell there, including two sons of Darius, Abrocomes and Hyperanthes, born to Darius by Fratagoon, daughter of Artanes. Artanes was the brother of King Darius, and son of Histapes, son of Arsimes. When he gave his daughter in marriage to Darius, he gave his whole house as dowry, since she was his only child. Two brothers of Xerxes accordingly fought and fell there. There was a great struggle between the Persians and Lacedaemonians over Leonidas's body, until the Hellenes, by their courageous prowess, dragged it away, and routed their enemies four times. The battle went on, until the men with Epialtes arrived. When the Hellenes saw that they had come, the contest turned, for they retired to the narrow part of the way, passed behind the wall, and took their position crowded together on the hill, all except the Thebans. The hill is at the mouth of the pass, where the stone lion in honor of Leonidas now stands. In that place they defended themselves with swords, if they still had them, 
and with hands and teeth. The barbarians buried them with missiles, some attacking from the front and throwing down the defensive wall, others surrounding them on all sides. This, then, is how the Lacedaemonians and Thespians conducted themselves, but the Spartan Dionysus is said to have exhibited the greatest courage of all. They say that he made the following speech before they joined battle with the Medes. He had learned from a Trachinian that there were so many of the barbarians that when they shot their missiles the sun was hidden by the multitude of their arrows. He was not at all disturbed by this, and made light of the multitude of the Medes, saying that their Trachinian foreigner brought them good news. If the Medes hid the sun, they could fight them all in the shade instead of in the sun. This saying, and others like it, they claim, Dionysus the Lacedaemonian left behind as a memorial. Next after him two Lacedaemonian brothers, Alpheus and Maron, sons of Orsophantus, are said to have been most courageous. The thespian who gained most renown was one whose name was Dithrambus, son of Harmatides. There is an inscription written over these men, who were buried where they fell, and over those who died before the others went away, dismissed by Leonidas. It reads as follows. Here four thousand from the Peloponnese once fought three million. That inscription is for them all, but the Spartans have their own. Foreigner, go tell the Spartans that we lie here obedient to their commands. That one is to the Lacedaemonians, this one to the seer. This is a monument to the renowned Megistius, slain by the Medes who crossed the Spirtius River. The seer knew well his coming doom, but endured not to abandon the leaders of Sparta. Except for the seer's inscription, the Amphictyons are the ones who honored them by erecting inscriptions and pillars. That of the seer, Megistius, was inscribed by Simonides, son of Leoprepes, because of his tie of guest friendship with the man. It is said that two of these three hundred, Eurytus and Aristodemus, could have agreed with each other either to come home safely together to Sparta, since Leonidas had dismissed them from the camp and they were lying at Alpini very sick of Ophthalmalia, or to die with the others, if they were unwilling to return home. They could have done either of these things, but they could not agree and had different intentions. When Eurytus learned of the Persian circuit, he demanded his armor and put it on, bidding his helot to lead him to the fighting. The helot led him there and fled, but he rushed into the fray and was killed. Aristodemus, however, lost his strength and stayed behind. Now, if Aristodemus alone had been sick and returned to Sparta, or if they had both made the trip, I think the Spartans would not have been angry with them. When, however, one of them died, and the other had the same excuse but was unwilling to die, the Spartans had no choice but to display great anger towards Aristodemus. Some say that Aristodemus came home safely to Sparta in this way and by this excuse. Others say that he had been sent out of the camp as a messenger, and could have gotten back in time for the battle, but chose not to, staying behind on the road, and so surviving, while his fellow messenger arrived at the battle and was killed. When Aristodemus returned to Lacedaemon, he was disgraced and without honor. He was deprived of his honor in this way. No Spartan would give him fire or speak with him, and they taunted him by calling him Aristodemus the Trembler. In the battle at Plataea, however, he made up for all the blame brought against him. It is said that another of the three hundred survived because he was sent as a messenger to Thessaly. His name was Pantetes. When he returned to Sparta, he was dishonored and hanged himself. The Thebans, whose general was Leontiades, fought against the king's army as long as they were there with the Hellenes and under compulsion. 
when, however, they saw the Persian side prevailing, and the Hellenes, with Leonidas, hurrying toward the hill, they split off and approached the barbarians, holding out their hands. With the most truthful words ever spoken, they explained that they were Medizers, had been among the first to give water and earth to the king, had come to Thermopylae under constraint, and were guiltless of the harm done to the king. By this plea they saved their lives, and the Thessalians bore witness to their words. They were not, however, completely lucky. When the barbarians took hold of them as they approached, they killed some of them even as they drew near. Most of them were branded by Xerxes' command with the king's marks, starting with the general Leontiidas. His son Eurymachus long afterwards was murdered by the Plataeans, when, as general of four hundred Thebans, he seized the town of Plataea. This, then, is how the Greeks fought at Thermopylae. Xerxes then sent for Demaratus, and questioned him, saying first, Demaratus, you are a good man. I hold that proven by the plain truth, for things have turned out no differently than you foretold. Now tell me this, how many Lacedaemonians are left, and how many of them are warriors like these, or is it so with them all? My king, said Demaratus, the number of the Lacedaemonians is great, and so too the number of their cities. But what you would like to know, I will tell you. There is in Lacedaemon a city called Sparta, a city of about eight thousand men, all of them equal to those who have fought here. The rest of the Lacedaemonians are not equal to these, yet they are valiant men. And how, Demaratus, answered Xerxes, can we overcome those men with the least trouble to ourselves? Come, disclose that to me, for you have been their king, and know the plan and order of their counsels. My king, Demaratus replied, if you in sincerity ask my counsel, it is but right that I should point out to you the best way. It is this, namely, that you should send three hundred ships of your fleet to the Laconian land. There is an island lying off their coast called Scythera. Chilon, a man of much wisdom among us, says about it that it would be better for the Spartans if Scythera were beneath the sea rather than above it. This he said because he expected that it would provide an opportunity for attack, just as I am suggesting. Not that he had any foreknowledge of your force, but he dreaded all men's forces alike. Let them then make that island their station, and set out from there to strike fear into the Lacedaemonians. If these have a war of their own on their borders, you will have no cause to fear that they will send men to save the rest of Hellas from being overrun by your armies. Furthermore, the enslavement of the rest of Hellas must weaken Laconia if it is left to stand alone. If, however, you do not do this, then expect what I will now tell you. A narrow isthmus leads to the Peloponnese. All the Peloponnesians will be banded together there against you, and you may expect battles more stubborn than those you have fought already. But if you do as I have said, then you may have that isthmus and all their cities without striking a blow. Next spoke Achaemenes, Xerxes's brother and admiral of the fleet. It chanced that he was present during their conversation, and he feared that Xerxes would be persuaded to follow Demaratus's counsel. O king, he said, I see that you are listening to a man who is jealous of your good fortune, or is perhaps even a traitor to your cause. These are the ways that are dear to the hearts of all Greeks. They are jealous of success, and they hate power. No, if after the recent calamity which has wrecked four hundred of your ships, you send away three hundred more from your fleet, to sail round the Peloponnese, your enemies will be enough to do battle with you. While your fleet is united, however, it is invincible, and your enemies will not be so many as to be enough to fight. Moreover, all your navy will be a help to your army, and your army to your navy, both moving together. 
if you separate some of your fleet from yourself, you will be of no use to them, nor they to you. My counsel is rather that you make your own plans well, and take no account of the business of your adversaries, what battlefields they will choose, what they will do, and how many they are. They are able enough to think for themselves, and we similarly for ourselves. As for the Lacedaemonians, if they meet the Persians in the field, they will in no way repair their most recent losses. Archimenes, Xerxes answered, I think that you speak well, and I will do as you counsel. Despite the fact that your advice is better than his, Demaratus does say what he supposes to be most serviceable to me, for assuredly I will never believe that he is no friend to my cause. I believe this of him, because of all that he has already said, and by what is the truth, namely, that if one citizen prospers, another citizen is jealous of him, and shows his enmity by silence, and no one, except if he has attained the height of excellence, and such are seldom seen, if his own townsman asks for counsel, will give him what he thinks to be the best advice. If one stranger prospers, however, another stranger is beyond all men his well-wisher, and will, if he is asked, impart to him the best counsel he has. It is for this reason that I bid you all to refrain from maligning Demaratus, seeing that he is a stranger and a friend. Having spoken in this way, Xerxes passed over the place where the dead lay, and hearing that Leonidas had been king and general of the Lacedaemonians, he gave orders to cut off his head and impale it. It is plain to me by this piece of evidence, amongst many others, that while Leonidas lived, King Xerxes was more incensed against him than against all others. Otherwise he would never have dealt so outrageously with his dead body, for the Persians are beyond all men known in the habit of honouring valiant warriors. They then, who received these orders, did as I have said. I return now to that place in my history where it earlier left off. The Lacedaemonians were the first to be informed that the king was equipping himself to attack Hellas. With this knowledge it was that they sent to the oracle at Delphi, where they received the answer about which I spoke a little while ago. Now the way in which they were informed of this was strange. Demaratus, son of Ariston, an exile among the Medes, was, as I suppose, reason being also my ally, no friend to the Lacedaemonians, and I will leave it to be imagined whether what he did was done out of good will or spiteful triumph. When Xerxes was resolved to march against Hellas, Demaratus, who was then at Susa and had knowledge of this, desired to send word of it to the Lacedaemonians. He, however, feared detection, and had no other way of informing them than this trick. Taking a double tablet, he scraped away the wax from it, and then wrote the king's plan on the wood. Next he melted the wax back again over the writing, so that the bearer of this seemingly blank tablet might not be troubled by the way-wardens. When the tablet came to Lacedaemon, the Lacedaemonians could not guess its meaning, until at last, as I have been told, Gorgo, Cleomenes' daughter and Leonidas's wife, discovered the trick herself and advised them to scrape the wax away, so that they would find writing on the wood. When they did so, they found and read the message, and presently sent it to the rest of the Greeks. This is the story as it is told. End of Volume 3, Part 10